0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.
1: To many, Washington had presented a reluctance towards assuming the presidency. He told his good friend and former aide Henry Knox, My seat on the chair of justice will, for me, feel not unlike a culprit at the gallows. Not exactly the kind of optimism we might expect. On April 30, 1789, anyone looking from Manhattan across the Hudson River would have seen a splendid sight, a swarm of decorated flotillas heading towards the island with throngs of spectators waiting. It was not, if one believed his letters to friends, what the new president, George Washington, wanted. He had hoped to make as little of a show as possible as he made his way from Mount Vernon to the new federal city, which was, at this time, and for the next two years, New York City. Yet close friends to Washington knew that there was probably a little bit of acting in this. Hamilton told him to not so many words to stop all this talk. By accepting the head of the Constitutional Convention in 1789, he had already put his name to and assumed fathership of this new federal government. And so he made his way towards New York, and at the nation's largest city of Philadelphia. Philadelphians encouraged Washington to mount on a white horse and ride across the Schuylkill River into the city. The protector of our sons and daughters, he was called, as he marched along. They sang and saluted the man who was leader no more, but ruler now. A song sung to the tune of God Save the Queen which you and I know as My Country Tis of Thee. I'll save you the singing for this podcast. At Elizabethtown, New Jersey, he boarded a barge to take him to what is now around Wall Street, where the Federal Hall, the seat of the new federal government, had been located. And there, in the Senate chamber, wearing a black velvet suit, the former general of American armies in the Revolution took the oath of office. His speech was not memorable, nor greatly eloquent. I walk on untrodden grounds, Washington said to friends, and he was right. Washington's actions in 1789 would go a long way to ensure a stable republic, and also to set an example for every president since. He won all 69 electoral votes available to him at the time. John Adams, by contrast, earned only 35 votes and won the vice presidency. The Congress had already arrived in New York, and in the Senate there was a debate raging over what to call their new executive. His Highness the President of the United States, or His Elective Majesty, These were among the names that John Adams put forth, yet other senators objected. Charles Carroll of Carrollton, a signer of the Declaration, and a wealthy guy, one might say an aristocrat. Didn't like the title. It sounded too much like a king. Richard Henry Lee, a senator from Virginia now, also a signer of the Declaration of Independence, read a list of all the potentates in in the world who were called highness. It was a very common term and one that would have to be used if Washington was to be the equal of others. The new president would be, among other things, the symbol of the government and the executor of foreign policy. This was the person whose communications we would be sending to France, England, or Spain, and we'd expect them to be respected. Should we not show respect for the holder of such an office? In the end, the House objected to any kind of dramatic title, and so the Senate went with simply calling Washington the President of the United States. The question was on Washington's mind, too, not just about how to be called, but how he would act. How should he conduct himself? He wanted to balance, he said to friends, between too free an intercourse with people and... Too ostentatious a show, it was suggested that he should hold some social events and On Tuesday afternoons, Washington held levies for men only kind of an open house, senators, congressmen, other people of importance could walk in, perhaps talk to the president, talk to each other, and the president was host on Friday his wife Martha would hold tea parties for men and women. He came to enjoy the tea parties much more than the levies. In the levies, he said, they are ignoring their host and enjoying the refreshments. But Washington enjoyed going to the tea parties and charming the ladies. These events did help to lubricate the social fabric of this new nation and allow people to talk informally help build relationships that might improve the workings of the government. But there were aspects of the social life that Washington grew tired of, especially the informal visitors, who would simply come to his house expecting an audience with the president. It was impossible, Washington said, to be relieved of the ceremony of one visit before I had to attend to another. The only precedent for... How Washington would act, besides King George or other kings or monarchs, uh, was the confederation presidents. But these people were not the same as the president of the United States. After the Revolutionary War, the country or the collection of states was ruled by a Articles of Confederation, and there was a Confederation Congress, in effect, controlling the country. It met rarely, and it wasn't always listened to that Confederation Congress elected a president, and so technically there were presidents of the group of United States uh, prior to the Constitution, but they were nothing like a president of the United States under the Constitution. But these presidents, having a bit more time than Washington, had taken visitors at all times at their house. In fact, one advisor to Washington referred to them as nothing more than hotel maitre D's. Washington would have none of this. He took out a newspaper ad in New York advertising social hours that he would receive visitors. He would expect no drop-ins at other times, and he would accept no invites to any other events other than his levies and tea parties. Already the move drew a little bit of criticism some saying that the new president was walled off like an eastern llama. But while Washington's step was trivial, it was also important Washington had established the president as a person of business. Presidents still today do spend a good deal of time entertaining people, entertaining foreign leaders, but obviously it's an office of business. At this time, Congress voted the president a $25,000 salary. Big money in that day, but all of his expenses also had to come from that sum, including these uh, Tea Parties and Levies. One of the most important decisions of 1789 uh, involved the one element of the constitutional government for which Washington had no role, no say amendments to the Constitution and those specific amendments that we now know as the Bill of Rights. Twelve in number at first when they were proposed by James Madison, the new House member from Virginia. They would be whittled down to ten. At the Virginia Ratification Convention, Madison had gotten enough of the Anti-Federalists to vote for the Constitution, if a series of amendments constituting a Bill of Rights were added to the document. Thomas Jefferson was also whispering in Madison's ear, saying that such a Bill of Rights was necessary for the new government to work. But the Constitution was ratified before any such Bill of Rights was enacted, and so technically the Congress and President were taking office without this Bill of Rights in effect with only the constitutional mechanisms provided for in the Constitutional Convention of in Philadelphia of 1789. Some of uh, the supporters of the Constitution, particularly the type of high Federalists, those that would later become uh, members of Hamilton's Federalist Party, wanted to simply continue to function as a constitutional government and ignore the promises made about a Bill of Rights. It was James Madison who patiently would support the new amendments and force them through the new Congress. Prior to putting them through, Madison showed them to the new executive, Washington, who, in his trademark silence, by offering no commentary at all, showed his consent. Ten amendments were passed. Two of them left out, uh, one regarding representation and the other on congressional salaries. They were also passed by the Senate and by the requisite number of states by September, and we had a Bill of Rights. No one measured GDP in 1789, but the economy that had been slogging along after the revolution, the quabbles between states, problems with currencies, and with foreign governments, was showing improvement now. As trade balances with England were improving, the British West Indies, that had been closed to Americans in a dispute with England, was still finding ways to trade with Americans despite the presence of the British Navy in the waters. Debate began almost immediately on a matter that would define U.S. federal level politics for a century and a quarter, and something that's still an issue today the tariff or taxes on imports. One might describe the whole debate as free trade. Madison advocated something less than free trade. He wanted a high tariff on Britain, a form of a punitive tariff, and a low tariff on other countries, especially those that have helped us during the Revolution. Other congressmen objected, citing the reality of business. Fisher Ames, congressman, called Madison's politics Frenchified. In the end, the Congress agreed to have an equal tariff on most countries at about 8%. The issue would not go away. Washington played no part in these debates. In fact, he could do little, as he had as as of yet no Secretary of State. He had no underlings at all. Congress needed to create departments, but took some time over the summer of 1789 to do so. In June... The nation nearly suffered its first presidential tragedy when a tumor appeared on the president's leg requiring surgery. Such a procedure was risky in those times. And the president recuperated for three days while physicians were not sure how his recovery would go. On his block in New York, the street was roped off so that the carriages would not wake him up. Washington would recover, of course, but between this incident and a crippling bout of influenza the next year, Washington, the 58-year-old, would not be the same physically. By early fall, Congress gave the president four offices, finance, foreign affairs, war, and an attorney general. and Washington set out immediately to fill the positions, not all of them with his first choices. For the Treasury Department, then known as the Finance Department, he would first seek out Robert Morris, the man who had financed the American Revolution. When he refused, Washington appointed his former aide, Alexander Hamilton. For Secretary of Foreign Affairs, which would soon become Secretary of State, Washington would seek out John Jay of New York, but Jay really wanted to be Chief Justice of the United States, a post that he would obtain later. And so Washington appointed Thomas Jefferson, who was then serving as the nation's minister to France, and probably the most famous uh, diplomat in the nation. He had also made trips to England during his time as a diplomat. Henry Knox was among his first choice for a war secretary, and He would put him in charge of a scattered group of 840 men, mostly unpaid, now constituting the federal army. Edmund Randolph would be named attorney general. As Congress started to authorize officers for the executive branch, Washington would find himself with almost a thousand positions to fill now, and he would have a dilemma, the same dilemma faced by many presidents, something that bothered him, riveted Lincoln, annoyed Garfield, pestered Wilson, the throngs of federal job seekers that would come to the president and the president's men seeking employment. And Washington would, in this time, set a precedent for appointments after he appointed a naval commander for Savannah who did not meet the approval of Georgia's two senators, senators who had strongly supported uh, the Washington administration. Washington made another choice and made a habit of consulting with the local state senators before he made appointments. In September 1789, before Hamilton was installed, Washington dealt with another issue of longstanding. He requested the finance records of the new nation, and found that there was a deficit, something on the order of seventy-seven million, to Americans, to state governments, and to Holland and France, and other countries. Washington was not a financier, and he decided to wait till Hamilton to, t- for Hamilton to take the office of Treasury, and so he could deal with the issue, which he would promptly in the next year. This was also a bit of a precedent, the ability of a president to delegate matters. Washington was the hero of the revolution, the father of his country. Everyone looked up to him, but he wasn't a master of technical details. He was a strong military man, and he managed the War Department, for instance, probably more than Henry Knox. But on other matters, it was hire good people and delegate. George Washington saw as his goal in 1789, mostly getting through the year, of having one solid year of a good federal government that worked, that was respected, that could get things done. Washington saw his role as president as the steward of that government, a symbol, yes, a guarantor, of the new system. He was not present during the Confederation Congress, and thus the Confederation Congress had no respect for most of the country. In his role as the steward, he took the Constitution literally and wanted to execute things the way it was written in the Constitution. For example, when the Constitution said that the president could inquire in writing to the department heads about any subject whatsoever relating to their duties, The president did just that. Jefferson noted that Washington sent very frequent inquiries to how things were going in the state office. And further, he held informal meetings, just as he did with his aides-de-camp during the Revolution, and reviewed correspondence sent by the secretaries. Since the Constitution was vague about whether the departments worked for the president or the Congress, Washington's actions immediately clarified these were his people reporting to him. On treaties, the Constitution called for advice and consent from the Senate before the president entered into a treaty. Here again, Washington took this literally and decided to actually go to the Senate chamber and seek advice from the Senate before he began a treaty with various Indian tribes. And he and Henry Knox appeared there and were greeted by the vice president, the presiding officer of the Senate. He and Knox entered the Senate chamber. John Adams read off 12 questions that Washington put before the body relating to the treaty. After reading them, Adams would ask, Do you consent to the Senate body? What followed was a very awkward moment. There were a few questions. Some senators said nothing at all. Then a few asked for more documents relating to the treaties. Once again, Adams would ask, do you consent? None of the senators felt like giving such a commitment. Exasperated, and setting a pattern of frustration with the legislative branch that nearly all presidents feel at different times, he stood up and said, this completely defeats the purpose of my coming here. Unlike the story is commonly told, Washington did not storm out of the Senate chamber. He collected himself, listened, and then the Senate tabled the matter for further discussion. The rare public outburst from the new president mirrors the frustrations many other presidents would have. Probably no one went as fast from one branch to another than Gerald Ford. He was minority leader in the House, then became vice president, and just eight months later became president. He should have had most understanding between the two bodies, but uh, he said when he was on one side of Pennsylvania Avenue, he said, I don't understand why the president is doing this, and when he was... In the presidency, he said, I don't understand why Congress is doing this. One thing was clear from the episode. Washington would never again seek advice from the Senate. The term advice and consent was now widely interpreted to be just archaic legal language, which could be simplified by just saying consent, and that meant a vote of the Senate. So the president brings a treaty before the Senate, and the Senate votes. Still, Washington would maintain informal contacts in both bodies. Adams and other senators in the Senate, and uh, the vice president in the Senate, and James Madison in the House would be his key sources of informal advice of how the legislative body was working. A major legislative act of 1789 would be the creation of the federal judiciary. The Constitution called for a supreme federal court, but did not specify what form it would take. For nationalists, those that would become federalists when the parties became more prominent, there was an opportunity here. They sought a stronger national government the constitution didn't immediately specify such a strong national government and there obviously weren't uh, wasn't a strong pre- uh, presence of the federal government throughout the nation but the courts could be an avenue for this if courts were placed federal courts in all parts of the country the federal government through that could control the country since federal law is supreme but it didn't happen that way The Judiciary Act was more moderate. It created a six-member Supreme Court and a federal court system with no more than about two locations per state. And that meant that to get a federal suit would be a little bit more difficult, require more time and expense, and cut down on the number of federal lawsuits. Thus, state courts would be stronger. Washington signed the legislation his concern was that the court system be the keystone of our political fabric, and the legislation, for the most part, accomplish the goal. Congress ended its work on September 29th and adjourned, not to meet again until January 4th, 1790, meaning that George Washington could now rule the country as an executive. He wisely chose not to do so saying in a letter to his friend that the government was as good as any in the world. Washington set off on a tour of New England, where people toasted him and the new government. 1789 was important in that Washington would lay down precedent for how this new executive position would really work. It wasn't a ribbon-cutter, nor a mere business manager either. Every president has since straddled that line. But 1789 would, as it turned out, reveal one more political trend. With a short first year, starting really in May, and ending at the end of September, the President's five months could be considered his honeymoon. And that for the government, too. The very next year, factions, soon to become parties, would form. Enemies in the federal government would be battling each other, Stymieing a lot of the work of that body. Controversial solutions would be proposed and have to be forced through Congress. And Washington would have to take more positions than he cared to take. He would always be revered by most, always be the hero of the revolution and a strong president, and he'd be reelected with no issue. But as he took more positions, some of Washington's charm would wear off. 1789, from that perspective, was Washington's golden time. As the first president's first year, it remains the most important one.